From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Make that live from Kalamata in Messenia, the southern part of uh, this wonderful country, Greece, coming to you live from the Elite City Resort, a beautiful hotel that has uh, hotel rooms, uh, business facilities, uh, villas, an incredible pool, dining facilities, tennis courts, which uh, North and Zach, my twin boys, are uh, taking some advantage of, but the pool, can't get them out of the pool. Um, myself, I love the pool, but uh, nothing better for me than to uh, go down to the ocean in Messinian Bay and just float on my back for like two hours, just uh, loving every minute of it down here. And my thanks to uh, the great folks here at the Elite City Resort for allowing me to broadcast the program. You know, Greece, of course, is the home of the olive. It is the home of Socrates and Plato. It is the home of democracy and politics and philosophy, Herodotus, on and on it goes. Little did I know, though, that Greece is also the home of the vampire. That's right. Many of the legends of the vampire got their start right here in Greece. And when I found this out, I had to give my good friend a call joins us the second Sunday of every month. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is an American researcher who writes on topics related to spirituality, the occult, and the paranormal. She's written 45 books, including 10 encyclopedias. Always a pleasure to welcome her, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard. I got a, a small bone to pick with you. I, my luggage was over at the airport, and it's it's partially your fault. You know why? I packed I packed your hefty tome, the Encyclopedia of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters, and hauled it all the way uh, down here to Kalamata because I knew we were going to talk about vampires. And, and uh, I mean, this is the definitive... Uh, work on vampires. Yes, this book probably did tip you over the scales. It's a good two or three pounds. I, I, real, I didn't realize. I, I came down here to Greece with, for a little R&R with my, my two little guys, not realizing I have stepped into sort of Vampire Central. One of the, oh, it was the manager here at the uh, Elite City Resort where I'm staying in Kalamata. Uh, asked, so what are you doing on the show tonight? And I said, well, uh, I mentioned some other things. I said, well, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is coming on, and we're going to talk about vampires. And she, in a in this hushed tone, you know, under her breath, she said, oh, vricolakas, vricolakas. And I said, well, what is that? And, and she said, vampires, vampires. That's what we call them here. And I didn't realize, uh, and then, I, of course, then I went into your book, your encyclopedia, and I, I didn't realize, though, that, that Greece is like Vampire Central. There's so much uh, lore and legend and actual first-hand accounts of encounters with vampires in Greece. Had I known, I may not have come. <laughs> you are indeed right in the capital of vampires. What we know about vampires, most of our popular culture lore came out of Serbia, but a lot of that uh, was integrated with lore from Greece. And Greece actually has um, many of the more interesting vampire cases, uh, really bloody cases and weird vampires, a, a lot of varied beliefs about vampires, very specific. And the Greek vampire is um, and the Eastern European vampire, although they, they share characteristics. But um, the Greek vampire is, is, uh, was believed to be a demon who possessed a corpse. 
uh, whereas in the European tradition, it's it could be a demon possessing a corpse, but it, it was you know a person, the lost soul of a person who didn't make it into the afterlife for a variety of reasons. They were excommunicated, drowned, you know, were murdered, committed suicide, were cursed, those sorts of things. And uh, those sorts of beliefs are also prevalent in the Greek lore as well. But um, uh, there are many, many detailed accounts of Greek vampires just wreaking havoc on the landscape, and some of them were very difficult to deal with and get rid of. Well, this is the thing that I'm that I'm learning now uh, in, in talking to some of the uh, the locals and the people here at the hotel. Is uh, this isn't just about you know legends and and stories? There are many recorded incidents. Uh, and, 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 and you detail them in, in, your, in, your, in your book. Uh, for example, let's get into this case recorded by this French botanist, Joseph Piton de Tournefort, uh, I believe on the island of Mykonos, not too far from here. That's right, and that's one of the best uh, Greek cases. And his, his writing was uh, so vivid, and uh, he actually had kind of a low opinion of what he uh, believed were superstitious um, locals, you know, who believed in this sort of thing. It was just beyond him. But he actually witnessed uh, an attempt to to put this vampire corpse to rest. And um, they didn't have very, very, very much success with it. But um, this concerned a, a man who uh, was very ill-mannered and nobody liked him very well. He was always getting in uh, difficulties with people and had a bad temper. And he was murdered. Well, in vampire lore, that's uh, step number one toward becoming a vampire. If you're murdered or commit suicide, you might come back as a vampire. Uh, so it's no surprise then when he did turn into a vampire. He was buried, and uh, people talked about him that, um, you know, he was a bad-tempered man, he was murdered, you know, they were worried he was going to come back as a vampire. And sure enough, not long after his burial, he was seen around town. Now, when vampires were seen around town, and, and this was the way they were described back then, we don't really know if they look like flesh and blood people walking around, if they looked like apparitions, but whatever form they were in, they were readily recognizable, and they did things to people, and uh, they often acted like poltergeists, and they would uh, create chaos and upset uh, things and scatter things about um yeah, they, they put out their lamps or uh, – yeah, they were more sort of mischievous tricksters rather than, you know, these uh, voracious, uh, you know, bloodthirsty creatures. Well, some, yes, yeah, some of them could be that way. And they could attack people at night and, like, tear their bedclothes off. They would often uh, create wasting away illnesses and people were – people would say they were attacked with a vampire and they started to feel poorly. Um, and so there were various remedies for these, and a mass was said uh, in the hopes of, of, you know, driving him back into his grave. Uh, that didn't work, and uh, so the next step was to exhume the body and, and burn it. But according to local custom, if this was a vampire they were dealing with, and they were convinced they were, they had to take his heart out separately and burn that first before they could burn the body. 
so this turned into a big comedy where they, they brought in the town butcher, and for butcher, he didn't really seem to know where the human heart was because he opened up the abdomen and started clawing around in the entrails. And, uh, of course, this decomposing corpse just set up a huge, great stench. And people were, you know, crying and shrieking. And finally he gets the heart out, and uh, they they burned it. The smell was so bad that they had to burn frankincense, which is a very powerful incense. Yes. And uh, Turnifort said that uh, he believed that the combination of this decomposing corpse stench and the incense caused, and plus the hysteria that was being whipped up, caused people to start to hallucinate. And they were shrieking that this big black cloud was coming up from the corpse and that this was the vampire. And uh, they were screaming and carrying on. It, it would have done Hollywood well, you know, to film this. Now, which and uh, the butcher was was crying out that the corpse's blood was still warm, and this was in fact another sign that it was a vampire. And uh, so, in in his account of this, Turnifort said that uh, well, of course, the blood might still be warm in a decomposing body because a lot of gases would be uh, emitted. But that didn't stop the the locals from believing that they had a real vampire corpse on their hands. So they burned the heart. They took it to the shore and burned it, you know, got it as far away from the village as possible. But this didn't stop the vampire. He still came back and attacked people, and now he was meaner and madder than ever. He beat them up. He broke down uh, doors. Um, he tore up clothing. He drank wine. Uh, and he created a whole lot of fear because now it seemed to be totally out of control and so out of control that people just deserted the town and they started living in tents outside the town because um, they felt that they were a little more protected uh, outside of there. And uh, So uh, finally, they, they did burn the body and uh, that seemed to help and Turner Fort's conclusion was that the Greeks were full of ignorance and superstition. Uh, but these sorts of cases were repeated over and over again in Greece, in, in uh, Turkey, in Asia Minor, in Serbia. Similar things, similar remedies were uh, undertaken in an effort to present, prevent rampaging dead people from terrorizing the living. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us and uh, the author of uh, oh dozens and dozens of, uh, of uh, works on the paranormal and supernatural, including uh, one that I've uh, brought with me. That's the Encyclopedia of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters. Uh, and here in Greece, uh, legends of vampires are, uh, are plentiful. Uh, or as they refer to them here, vrikolakas. Uh, and, and the thing is, Rosemary, even to this day, I, I'm told, uh, now people might be hesitant to admit it, but I mean, they, they may have relatives. Uh, for example, right here uh, in the Elite uh, Hotel in the Messinian Bay, we are uh, in the shadows of the Tahito Mountains, which are a beautiful mountain range, part of the Peloponnesian Mountains. And they have some, there are some very remote horios or villages up there. And I've driven up there. It's beautiful. Uh, but I'm told, you know, people have relatives that still to this day believe, uh, in the Vricolacas. Hard to imagine in 2013, but who knows? 
we find this uh, really all over the place uh, in in those countries and in, and in Europe. A few years ago, I went to Romania, and uh, I, I was there on a Dracula trip and making a pilgrimage to various sites that were connected with Vlad Tepish and the legends of Dracula and that sort of thing. And we, we passed through a lot of remote countryside where we would come upon very small villages and see family grave plots that would be um, marked off with wooden stakes or metal stakes. And these were not decorations. Uh, they were not intended to keep the living out. They were intended to keep the dead in. Um, so that people would not be able to leave their graves and come back to the living. So, uh, yes, these beliefs are still prevalent today. All right, Rosemary, listen, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk about the vampires of Santorini, numerous cases of vampire attacks on the volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, about 120 miles off the coast of Greece, renowned in its past for... Uh, vampire activity. Rosemary Ellen Guiley talking vampires. Richard Serrett coming to you live from Kalamata, Greece, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Her website is www.visionaryliving.com. Rosemary joins us the second Sunday of every month. And we're talking about vampires, or as they're known locally, vricolakas. Now, we, uh, we, we talked about this incident of a vampire in the 18th century on the island of Mykonos. Now we move to another island, and uh, that would be Santorini, a beautiful volcanic island in the Aegean Sea. And again, this is Vampire Central. Uh, I mean, if, if Greece is Vampire Central, then Santorini, the island of Santorini in Greece, is really uh, Vampire Central Greece. It's right at the epicenter. I've been to Santorini. I thought it was an absolutely spectacular island. And it's hard to imagine that it was literally the vampire dumping grounds in the past. And uh, this is something that human beings have done. We've always shipped our undesirables off to some distant location, preferably an island. In folklore around the world, evil spirits, uh, the restless dead, cannot cross water. So to get something like a vampire off the mainland or at least off your island onto another island meant that it could never come back and pester you. So Santorini got to be um, the, the destination place for uh, corpses believed to be vampires, the unwanted dead, uh, the ashes of the uh, uh, alleged vampire corpses, and they were all sent off to Santorini. Well, there were some very unusual cases there, and um, they intrigued uh, an Englishman by the name of Montague Summers, who was uh, a cleric and a very strange man in his own right, but he was intensely interested in witchcraft and werewolves and vampires. He went to Santorini to witness how some of those cases were handled uh, himself. And there was a, an interesting one, um, and, and this didn't have so much to do with, with uh, blood drinking and that kind of havoc, but it concerned a moneylender. 
who um, acquired a, a lot of money and he gave away lots to charity. But he told his wife that uh, if he died before she did, that um, uh, if anyone came to her afterwards and said that, well, uh, he had cheated them in any way or they felt shortchanged, she was to make restitution. Well, he died, and that's what happened. Some uh, people came and said, um, well, we'd, we'd like to have restitution because we feel, you know, your husband owed us money. Well, she refused to give it to them. And within days, he was back as a vampire, uh, and he was absolutely furious. So he acted like a very, really more like an angry ghost, creating huge disturbances, lots of noise, um, and doing a lot of poltergeist things, like invading bedrooms and uh, messing around with the bed covers. He... He um, uh, turned the spouts on people's wine barrels, and they lost all their wine. He shouted at priests uh, and berated them. Um, he laughed at their prayers. You know, he did all, all sorts of things like that. And he shook beds. There was a story that he shook the bed of a pregnant woman so bad she miscarried. Well, he carried on like this. And she still refused to pay these people. Uh, and... She was advised that his instructions ought to be fulfilled, but instead she had his body dug up and exercised by priests because she hoped that would get rid of him, and it didn't. It just made things worse. So finally, when she paid the people the money, he was satisfied. And uh, she did have the uh, corpse exercised, and uh, and, uh, they actually hacked it to bits and then reburied it. That was a very common remedy of the time. People believed that if the body was destroyed, it would no longer be a vehicle for the the vampire uh, entity or spirit of the corpse to to act out. So um, that was a case with a different twist. Then there was another case where uh, the vampire was a good guy. And he was a cobbler um, on Santorini, and and he came back and uh, helped out his family uh, after he died. Uh, Even though people considered him um, a vampire, and he would chop wood for the neighbors. But after a while, people got to be very nervous because nobody likes a vampire around, even if they're helpful. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) they did have his his corpse dug up, and uh, they burned it, and after that, he never showed up again. It it almost sounds as if uh, these legends are sort of blurring the lines between uh, vampires, or at least our understanding of what vampires are, and just run-of-the-mill ghosts or or poltergeists because these things, according to uh, Greek legend, uh, appear during the day, which certainly doesn't square with our understanding of vampires as being these, you know, the undead creatures of the night. Uh, And also, we don't hear a lot about uh, these these vampires uh, feasting on human blood so much. I mean, where are those accounts? A lot of those accounts, some of them do uh, come out of Greece, but a lot of those come out of Eastern Europe. And and even so, they've been greatly magnified in our uh, popular culture and film and fiction to the point where we think vampires, that's all they did, was attack people to drink their blood. But the vampire, uh, even back in earlier times, was uh, very blurred with a lot of other uh, negative entities who would pester people, some of them believed to be people coming back after death, and even some of them blurring with demonic entities like the uh, like the Greek vampire. 
And so we find these these uh, crossovers with the poltergeist effects, even sexual attacks like an incubus or a succubus kind of demon, um, specters that they walked around in, in ghost-like forms, and um, they could create wasting away illnesses and, and even cause people to die. And then they also might drink your blood. And we do have accounts uh, of people saying that they felt their blood had been been taken by the vampire. But the broadest way of looking at the vampire is, is um, somebody who takes your life force through a variety of ways, and that's a wasting away of your, your health and a disruption of your life. In certain parts of Eastern Europe, the vampires were known more for taking things like your money, your luck, your love, causing your animals to uh, to not, uh, like your cows not to give milk and uh, butter couldn't churn and things like that. They would disrupt your livelihood, and they would do that more than uh, the classic sort of, of blood drinking. So we're the ones who've kind of skewed that end of things. Well, to further muddy the waters, uh, after reading your, your encyclopedia, Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters, um, the, the, the word, or the, the, the common Greek term for vampire, vrikolakas, is actually derived from a Bulgarian term, vrakolak, which means werewolf. So, now I'm really confused, Rosemary. <laughs> what are we talking here? Are we talking vampires or werewolves? And here again, Richard, it's sometimes a very blurry line. And we find this in Eastern Europe, too, an overlap between vampire lore and werewolf lore, like the two are interconnected. And in fact, in some parts of Eastern Europe, there were very distinct beliefs that uh, if you were cursed as a werewolf, uh, and there were lots of beliefs about how you would become a werewolf and how you would act, uh, and here again, our, our popular culture is... It treats it very differently today, and then once you died, you would become a vampire. Uh, and Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, did a very artful uh, way of combining a lot of these beliefs into Dracula because he does have wolf-like characteristics. The Count is, um, he's pale, but he's, he's hairy in unusual ways. He's got uh, hands with fingernails like claws, and the palms of his hands are hairy. It's this is uh, you know the attribute of the werewolf in him, and he does shape shift into a wolf form, and he commands wolves. He commands the wolf berserker. Uh, so there is this overlap, and we find that woven throughout uh, vampire lore um, in many places. So does one become the other or exhibit the characteristics? Well, the werewolf is known for a bloodlust of um, tearing people and animals apart and consuming their flesh and drinking their blood. And vampires have been described as going on these rampages as well. So uh, they seem to be maybe different shape-shifted forms of, of perhaps the same thing, uh, a, a predatory, marauding entity that comes either out of the grave or out of the demonic ethers uh, to um, trouble the, the living. The thing that the thing that impresses me about these uh, cases of vampires in Greece is the detail 
the the providence almost. You have specific individuals named. I mean, one could easily go into the records to find out whether there was a Father Francois Richard uh, living in Santorini. I think they actually named the village as well. Uh, and, yes. and of course, this was a case that he investigated and he names this money lender. Uh, the last name, I, I believe, was Ionides. I mean, specific details that are mentioned. One could, you know, uh, if one wanted to investigate this further and find out, you know, whether these people actually existed. Generally, when we hear about vampire legends, we hear, we hear them in terms of sort of vague reference, but not the specifics that we're getting in, in, into here in, in, in these Greek cases. A lot of these specifics were uh, recorded by the Europeans who were fascinated by the vampire practices and cults and went to locations to uh, witness some of these cases and how the bodies were handled and uh, and, and talk to people. Um, the, the vampire culture was more or less discovered by the West in the early 1700s. There were Austrian soldiers in military campaigns who were sent into remote parts of um, Eastern Europe, and some of them went into Turkey, Serbia, and uh, then there were Serbian soldiers also who served in Greece, and that's where they learned uh, more about vampires, too. And uh, when uh, Johann Flukinger, who was a military surgeon, uh, came, came across some of these beliefs and cases, he was absolutely flabbergasted. He could hardly believe it. It seemed so barbaric and primitive and superstitious to him. And he wrote up a report that wound up being published, and it just, uh, talk about going viral. Uh, back in the 1700s, that's exactly what happened to this report, and it just captured uh, the the Western literati and, and uh, uh, occultists by storm. Uh, so that's what prompted people like um, Turner Fort. Now, he was off on his botanical expeditions, but he was very curious about this, and Quite the documentarian, you know, he, he kept detailed diaries of everything. So did Montague Summers. Uh, Flukinger wrote up a, a number of cases. Um, uh, Dom Calme did. So we have European observers who um, really got a lot of the records down about these cases. Otherwise, I think a lot of them would have been lost. Let's take a time out when we come back. Let's talk about some of the causes of uh, or how one becomes a vampire. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, the author of Vampires, Werewolves, and Other Monsters. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show coming to you live from Kalamata in southern Greece. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. 
Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, author, and uh, regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show. She joins us the second Sunday of every month, and we're talking about vampires because Greece, as it turns out, much to my shock and dismay, happens to be vampire central. And as someone who grew up on the Hammer films, and even to this day, I mean, I am haunted by uh, vampire nightmares, which actually I can, I, it goes back to a, a drive in movie, 1967. My my parents took me to see, or they went to see Divorce American Style. I was, you know, a mere three years old, but, you know, babysitters were expensive, so they piled all five of us kids into the back of the station wagon, and we were supposed to fall asleep in the back. And uh, before the movie, the main feature started, there was a trailer for The Queen of Blood. Uh, and I can remember it even, you know, 45 years later. And uh, vampires haunt me to this day. So here I find myself in uh, in the middle of uh, uh, really the origin of the vampire legend. So different ways, obviously, that one can become vampires, and and uh, that varies from culture to culture. But here in in Greece, what are some of the more common ways that one could become, you know, a reanimated? corpse, if you will. Some of them come from old folklore, and some of them have uh, Christian elements that got mixed into them. For example, if you were a heretic, um, if you were excommunicated, then you would become a vampire. But some of the more peculiar ones that, that come out of the folklore, if a certain animal jumps over your corpse before you're buried, this uh, was one reason why people were always uh, assigned to sit with a corpse um, prior to burial to make sure that nothing happened that would jeopardize uh, the journey of, of the soul into the afterlife. Nobody wanted anybody hanging around. Now, in Greece, all kinds of animals uh, were believed to be vampire makers, donkeys for one, but cats were number one. And uh, so if a, and now almost every household had a cat, so you had to really watch the cat. Uh, and, and there was an old saying uh, related to this that um, if, if you want to say, well, like someone was going to get his comeuppance in the end for all of his bad acts, he would say the cats will eat him. And that was a, a reference to, well, after, after death, he'll, he'll just be a vampire. Well, there are so many feral cats running around in Greece. Uh, I mean, this is, this is well-known. And dogs, wild do- uh, not wild dogs, but uh, homeless dogs, I guess, for lack of a better term, stray dogs. Lots of stray dogs and lots of stray cats. So, uh, so if, if a stray cat were to jump over your grave, you might become a vampire. Um, here's an interesting one that I, I, uh, I just um, learned, again, from your book. Uh, being stillborn. stillborn. Anything that was tragedy and unnatural um, could be considered a candidate for creating a vampire. Um, and birth defects, if you had certain birth defects, um, protuberances from the spine, you were said to have a tail. Um, if you were in, and one major belief in Greece was if you were born with a call, and that's the um, the amniotic fluid that encases the fetus. And sometimes when people are born, a, a piece of it clings to the head. If a child was born with a call, well, they they 
kind of where he had a double-edged sword. They would be considered to be very psychically gifted. And on one hand, they could battle the forces of darkness, but on the other hand, their gifts included things like um, the evil eye and knowledge of sorcery, and um, they could be... Um, they would probably become vampires after uh, after death. And uh, there was one practice where the ashes of the call were, uh, the call was burned, and the ashes were saved in a little vial. And when uh, a child turned age seven, uh, the ashes would be mixed in water, and the child would drink it. And this was supposed to be a remedy, a prevention against becoming a vampire. So uh, you could be stillborn or you could have some strange birth, and that would mark you. Uh, if you died in bad ways, um, I mentioned the murder, the suicide, drowning. People all over the world seem to fear drowning as one of the worst ways to go. And drowning deaths have all kinds of um, bad folklore associated with them of what happens to the people who drown. All right. Uh, Sorry, let me just jump in. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley discussing vampires here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740. Welcome back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley with us as she joins us the second Sunday of every month. And, of course, we're talking vampires Coming to you live from the Elite City Resort in Kalamata, just steps from the ocean and in the shadow of the Tahitos Mountains. So you get the best of both worlds here. You get the sun, the surf, and the mountains, uh, both just moments away. And uh, delighted to have Rosemary with us as we're talking vampires. We were talking about some of the, the causes of vampires. Now, I would imagine that where you have a problem vampires you'd have to have a solution i'm guessing that in just about every village or as they call them here horios you'd have to have someone well versed in the destruction of vampires a vampire killer or a vampire hunter if you will uh can you tell me about some of these uh, individuals that, i mean was it was this basically relegated to the the clergy or did people take it upon themselves to dispatch vampires the, the clergy were really very uneasy about vampires and uh, dealt with them uh, within the, the rituals of the Christian church, mainly as a way of, of trying to stamp out what they considered to be the superstitious practices of, of the pagans. Um, you could be a professional vampire hunter. This was uh, literally a profession in many villages where these things uh, wreaked a lot of havoc. And uh, they seemed to be individuals who possessed psychic ability, uh, clairvoyance, but they often made a great show of coming into a village and dispatching the vampire, and they would have, like, their tools of the trade, uh, their tricks, uh, they would ring bells, uh, they would take their jacket off and look down the sleeve like a telescope as a way of bringing the vampire into focus, and it was their job to, uh, to identify the vampire corpse. And uh, so the, the more show they put into it uh, to look like they were really doing something, the better it was for them, the more they would get paid. And oftentimes their payment was a chicken or a horse or, you know, whatever the village could afford. It wasn't usually money. 
And they literally rode around like vampire gunslingers, so to speak, going from town to town, dispatching these things, especially during uh, times of ep epidemic. That was another big cause of vampires. If you died in an epidemic, you would be uh, likely to come back as a vampire. So the church, uh, when the church tried to Christianize a lot of these areas, they had to deal with this. And just telling the the, uh, the locals not to do it anymore didn't cut any mustard. So uh, the, the priests would have to step in and say, look, if, um, this is the way that you deal with the unwanted spirits and, and with evil. And so they would perform uh, rites of exorcism. They would throw holy water on uh, graves and corpses. And when they had to, they would oversee ex, uh, exhumation of a body. But oftentimes the villagers had their way anyway and hacked the body to pieces and burned it up and threw it in the water. That was the best way to, to get rid of a vampire. The priests would not do that themselves. And sometimes they, they literally had to, to just sort of look the other way um, and just let the, the locals deal with things in, in their own way. I find it uh, somewhat odd that the Greek Orthodox Church, for example, I mean, which certainly acknowledges, you know, the existence of demons. And if we're talking about a reanimated corpse that has been possessed by a demon, uh, one would think that the uh, the church would sort of embrace that. I mean, not not as being a a, a, a legend or a superstition, but as being a a manifestation of the gospel truth. Well, they seem to have had a rather schizophrenic uh, view on on these sorts of things. And I, I, I have the impression from reading the literature that many times they just wanted the whole thing to go away uh, and, and not have to deal with, with vampires anymore. And you have to keep, remember that a lot of these uh, places were remote. Um, priests were small in number, and they, they might have on their hands dealing with a mob of hysterical people and who were insisting that things had to be done a certain way. Um, so they probably had to call the shots as they saw them uh, in, in any given time. But, um, yeah, the church's official attitude toward all of this was that uh, these were pagan superstitions and they, it was their job to turn people to the right and true way to, uh, to deal with um, the unwanted, unseen, and uh, the evil. Now, here's something about uh, uh, vampires that I think is very specific to, to Greece or maybe Eastern Europe, Southern or Eastern Europe. And I didn't know this again until I read your book. And that is the Vrikolakas, as they call them uh, here in Greece, can leave its grave any day but Saturday. Why is that? There was a very widespread belief that uh, vampires had to be confined to their grave on uh, the day before the Sabbath. And that this was the time, the best time to go out and hunt them down because they would the, they would always be in their graves and they could be the bodies could be dug up and staked and uh, hacked up and burned and um, the vampire would be at home so to speak. Uh, this belief is also found in in Eastern Europe as well, uh, and so that was the big day for vampire hunting Saturday. 
Here's something else. Uh, again, we, we alluded to this earlier. I was asking, you know, we, we don't hear in a lot of these accounts that we've been talking about uh, of vampires, you know, attacking people and drinking their blood. Uh, in fact, the Vricolacas is not generally known for drinking blood, but for killing people through unprovoked attack, disease, and illness, as you mentioned. It preys upon humans and animals and tears out their livers. They like the liver, apparently, Rosemary. I guess they need some iron. (laughs) (laughs) They're not taking the blood, so they're getting it from the liver. Um, There are these different pockets of beliefs, and we find them around Eastern Europe, too. Uh, Europe was by no means uniform in its belief about uh, how vampires preyed upon people. And the, the tearing out of the liver, I've only encountered that related to the Greek vampire uh, the Eastern European ones seem to be either more bloodthirsty or um, just more of a, a general poltergeist, um, suck off your life force sort of uh, entity. Now, this part, um, you know, thankfully it's not dinner time because uh, I, I sort of hesitate to mention this, but it also uh, appears that the uh, the vampires here in Greece, anyway will appear in a house, eat all the food, or ruin the food by defecating and urinating all over it. I mean, this obviously did not make it into the Hollywood depictions. You know, if Hollywood had to portray the vampire of folklore, nobody would have ever gone to see any of these movies. They're they're just totally disgusting uh, characters. And... Uh, the, the urinating and defecating, that's also quite common. And in fact, um, there was another vampire case from, from Greece, uh, from the uh, Tithnos um, island. And this, this was a guy who um, died, and they put a cross in his mouth. Uh, in an effort to prevent him coming back as a vampire. This was a Christian remedy, but he came back anyway. And the description was that he, he marched up and down the streets and um, went into their homes and feasted on the food and wine. And he went up on the roof where he would <laughs> urinate on the people below. I mean, it's almost comical, some of these descriptions. But uh, the, these sorts of things would absolutely terrify people. Well, you see, this fits into my sort of understanding of vampires as these vile, filthy, uh, uh, demonically possessed corpses. Uh, you know, not the romanticized uh, vampire diaries and my babysitter's a vampire and, and the twilight where people are dating vampires. As you say, if they only knew, this is the real vampire, defecating on people's food, urinating on people's food, tearing out people's livers. Uh, yeah, they're really foul, foul creatures. Now, I guess last point of order, and perhaps most important, my own personal security and that of my little guys. Uh, how can I, uh, again, being, uh, you know, residing here at the foot of the Tahito Mountains, which are, you know, they're kind of ominous looking, especially at, you know, twilight. How can I keep a vampire from my door, Rosemary? Well, of course, you can uh, use a cross or a crucifix, but that's a Christian remedy, and the vampire beliefs preceded Christianity quite a bit. People used uh, garlic, um, the color blue, and this was used against the evil eye. Uh, You know, in the Middle East, we see those uh, evil eye amulets, um, and it's a very uh, deep 
uh, kind of cobalt blue. Uh, this color was believed to repel vampires. So uh, that kind of amulet could be hung on your door. Another remedy uh, would be to scatter seeds around your bed. I mean, forget the the uh, holy water and salt because the pagans said something else would work better. You put a lot of millet seeds or poppy seeds around your bed. And the belief was that the vampire would have to stop and eat all of those one by one before it could come and attack you in your bed. Uh, it's, this is one of the remedies that, uh, here again, it seems very comical, but when somebody was buried uh, who was feared uh, for coming back, they would fill the coffins with small seeds uh, as food for the vampire to keep it happy so it would stay in the ground. Uh, so you could certainly try uh, any of those. Garlic, that's probably the best, uh, most universal remedy. Just hang some garlic right on the door. Well, thus endeth the lesson, Rosemary. Uh, you've you've told us more than we ever knew or imagined about vampires. And really, I think you know this is these are the straight goods. Never mind the Hollywood depictions. This is your true uh, vampire, and unfortunately, residing right here in uh, in Greece. So uh, thank you, and I feel uh, I feel sort of forewarned and forearmed now. Good luck, Richard. All right, Rosemary. We'll talk to you next month. There you go, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And as we say, uh, good night and uh, good morning from the Elite Hotel here in uh, Kalamata, Greece. I just wanted to leave you with this parting uh, article. Conspiracy theories are becoming conventional wisdom. A recent psychological and sociological study in the U.S. and the United Kingdom indicates that the so-called conspiracy theories about contested events such as 9-11, are turning, are turning into the conventional wisdom, according to an analyst, an analyst. According to a psychological study of online discussions of news articles comparing pro- and anti-conspiracy comments, those who disbelieve government accounts of such events as the 9-11 uh, attacks and the JFK assassination outnumber believers by more than two to one, according to Kevin Barrett in an article published by Press TV. That means it is the pro-conspiracy commentators who are expressing what is now the conventional wisdom, while the anti-conspiracy com commenters are becoming a small, beleaguered minority, he said. He went on to say that studies show that those who accept the official versions of contested events often displayed anger and hostility, possibly due to the fact that their conventional views no longer represent the majority. He noted that those who favored stereotypical ver uh, versions of news events turned out to be fanatically attached to their own conspiracy theories as indisputably true. For people who think 9-11 was a government conspiracy, he says, the focus is not on promoting a specific rival theory, but in trying to debunk the official account. He also added that it was the CIA that invented and popularized the term conspiracy theorists, as part of a propaganda campaign to smear and defame people questioning the JFK assassination. In other words, people who use the terms conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorist as an insult are doing so as the result of a well-documented, undisputed, historically real conspiracy by the CIA to cover up the JFK assassination. That campaign, by the way, was completely illegal. 
He said that the anti-conspiracy people seek out information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs while using irrational mechanisms to avoid conflicting information. He concluded that the CIA's old campaign to stifle debate using the conspiracy theory smear is nearly worn out, adding pro-conspiracy voices are now more numerous and more rational than anti-conspiracy ones. There you go. Conspiracy theories are becoming conventional wisdom. Whoever thought my program would become mainstream. <laughs> In any event, uh, my thanks to uh, Tim Spreen for uh, technical production. Uh, next week, media scientist Nelson Fall will be on the program to talk about the lunar landing hoax as we approach the 44th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. And Dr. Cass Ingram, I believe, is going to be uh, here to talk about oregano, talk about Greece. I mean, uh, Greece is known for its uh, wild oregano. And uh, Dr. Cass Ingram will be here to talk about how foods like oregano and other things found in the Mediterranean diet can help heal. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.